Have you ever seen one of these strongman competitions where these guys do just amazing feats of strength? Things I look at and, and part of me says, man, I wish I could do that. And then another part of me thinks, I'm kind of glad I can't because I just don't think I'd want to devote that much time to be able to doing it. But they just do phenomenal things. There's one I was thinking of. They got up and they had these metal bars. And they were just so strong, they could bend the metal bars. It was amazing. In one moment, it was just a coat hanger. In the next moment, he just took it like this. Like it was nothing. Then another guy got up. He said, I can bend solid metal. I thought, no way. He had a sheet, I kid you not, of aluminum foil. Aluminum foil. And he just, just like that. Nothing. Another guy got up. He was going to do one of these power lift things. I can't do it. But he, you look at the bar and there was... I don't know, two, three, maybe five pounds on each side. And he just like it was nothing above his head. Now, are you impressed with that? No. Why is that not impressive? Probably because I think my two-year-old could do it. Maybe not the bar, because I think, how much does the bar weigh? Some of you actually lift. (laughs) 45 pounds. Yeah, my two-year-old couldn't even move the bar. But still... It's not all that impressive because there's not a whole lot of strength to bend a coat hanger. There's not a lot of strength to crumple up aluminum foil. There's not a lot of strength involved to move a bar that has a few pounds on each end. Nobody would pay to go to that strongman show. When you go to a show where somebody's showing their strength or a competition where somebody's showing their strength, you expect to see them doing something difficult right? It's got to be something hard because if it's easy, there's really no strength involved. So open up to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going through this series on praying with Paul. We're looking at Paul's prayers through several of his letters. There happen to be two here in Ephesians. We looked at Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 last week. And we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 this week. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in Ah, one in the pew in front of you, at least there should be. And if you really don't have a Bible, I mean more than just you forgot one, you just don't have one, take that one. We'd love to get that in your home. Just take it, read it. We've got more. We will replace it. But in in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, Paul prays for strength. And as I thought about this idea of strength, and I thought, why is he praying for strength? It's because the things that he's going to pray for, and he's going to give some specific things. The things he's praying for, saying they need strength, is because these things are hard. They're difficult. If they were easy, you wouldn't need strength to do it. Now, I think we're going to be a little shocked at what Paul considers difficult. Because some of them are some very basic things to the Christian life. Some of them are Sunday school things we teach our little kids. Oh, do you believe this? Yes, I believe that. Okay, that was easy. Let's move on. But they are difficult things, and we need God's strength. He's going to give three specific reasons that they need God's strength. Let's read the passage. I'll read it for you. You can follow along. We're going to start in verse 14. We'll read down through 21, and then we'll walk through it get an overview of exactly what Paul's praying for, these specific reasons then, and we'll apply it to us. Verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. 
I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now before we dig into the three things, these three reasons that Paul's going to pray and ask for strength concerning, I want to look at just an overview. First of all, who is Paul praying to? Because often, now, you might say, well, duh, he's praying to God. Okay, but in Paul's prayers, he says something about God. He starts by saying, this is who God is, and because of that, this is what I'm going to pray. So how does he identify God in this passage? He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. This, this is a very confusing phrase. It's a very confusing phrase in, in English. It's a confusing phrase even more so in Greek. We're not going to get into all the specifics of what it could mean, but let me just give you the gist, the overarching idea. It's this idea that if there is any authority in heaven or on earth, it is in some way a reflection of the ultimate authority that God has. It's kind of using a family tree mentality. This idea that those who are descendants of, in some way, represent the original trunk, as Carol called it. So Paul is saying, and he's basically given this idea that God has all authority. So that's the beginning of his prayer. He is praying to the one that has all authority. And then he's going to pray for strength. Look at verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's the heart and soul of Paul's prayer here. Now, he's going to elaborate on that. But the heart of his prayer for these Christians is that God would give them the power and the strength that they need in their inner being. Now, where is he going to get this from? What's the source or or what does he have to offer? If somebody's going to give you something, if somebody says, I want to take out of my riches and I want to give them to you, you might say, okay, well, you know, how much are we talking about? Because if I've got 10 bucks in the bank and I come to you and say, well, out of my riches, I want to just give some to you, you're going to say, yeah, it's really not that much. But if I'm wealthy and I say out of my riches, I want to give to you, well, that might mean something then, doesn't it? What is the source or, or the supply that God has to give. And he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches. I was thinking about this. Often in stories or in movies, the the main person, or, or sometimes it's the bad guy, they walk into a cave, they walk into a room, they walk somewhere, like in The Hobbit. And there's just a room filled with gold. It's the room filled with treasure, right? It's every pirate story, every told. It's, it's every adventure. Somewhere, they're getting to the room that's filled with gold. Why? Why is that such a good thing? Because with these earthly riches, they think all of their needs and all of their desires 
are going to be met. And why? Well, if you have a need for food and you have a lot of money, guess what? You're going to be able to buy food. If you have a need for shelter and you have a lot of money, you're going to be able to buy shelter. What about desires? Well, let's say you want a yacht. If you want a yacht and you have a lot of money, you can buy a yacht. So there's this idea that the treasure itself is not really the point. It's what the treasure could lead to. So when we come to the riches of God, we need to understand he's not talking about a bunch of gold sitting around in a room. He's talking about the needs and the desires that that gold points to. We have deep needs in our life. And God has this riches of his grace and his love and his mercy. And he supplies our deepest needs. The deepest need that any of us has is our need to be loved and to be restored to a right relationship with God. And God has supplied that need through his son, Jesus Christ. Does that mean he ignores everything else? No, the Bible says God takes care of his children. He supplies our needs. Well, what about our desires? Does this mean you can go to God if he really is the source of all glorious riches? Does this mean we can go to God and say, well, God, hey, I really want a yacht, and God will give it to you? Well, we have to look at what's behind that desire. You see, there's this idea that if I had a yacht or whatever it might be for you, I would be happy. Or I could spend time with my family. Or I could do whatever it is I think that thing's going to help me to do. And so we think that's going to fulfill this desire. But what often happens according to worldly riches? We get the thing that we think will fulfill our desires, and what happens? Does it? It doesn't. It doesn't actually fulfill the desire. Because then there's another desire. Or, you know, you get the latest, greatest phone, and you finally get exactly what you want, and what happens? Well, the next one comes out. Or you go to Nicaragua, and you drop it on the tile floor, and it shatters. That just... For example, saying, it's okay. It's got packing tape on it. It works wonders. I think I'm good for a year. So we have this idea that this thing will meet our desire, but underneath that desire for a yacht or a, a fancy house or a fancy car or whatever it is, there's this sense of happiness or fulfillment or companionship or love that we are expecting that thing to meet. So when we look at the riches of God's grace, we have to say God doesn't meet those superficial needs that we think will make us happy. He meets the deeper needs that actually will bring us joy. Not always in the way we think he will. Sometimes it's not until we get to heaven that all of those needs and those desires are met. But make no mistake, out of his glorious riches, everything we need and desire has been given to us by Jesus Christ. So he's praying that God would take out of this glorious riches and give them the strength and the power that they need. And he specifically says this strength and this power needs to be applied to their inner being. Their inner being. For Paul, he looks at people and he says there's the outward actions. This is where we do things, we interact with people, we obey, we have habits, whatever it is. That's the outward person. But for Paul, all of that comes from the inside. What we do on the outside is merely a reflection of what's going on in our hearts. The desires in our hearts are expressed through our actions. The needs of our hearts and our minds are expressed in our actions. So what Paul is saying, and I think this is important for us to catch, when we're talking about strength in particular, 
Paul's not saying, I really pray that God would change the way you act. God, give them the strength to be a better Christian. Give them the strength to be more holy. Give them the strength to just try harder. No, he's saying, God, work in that inner part that only you can touch. Give them the strength to change those desires in the way only you can change them. To reshape and recreate the priorities that have taken hold in their heart. To uproot the idols that are there. Give them the strength and the power in the inner being. Because Paul knows that's what's going to give strength and power to the outer person. Paul is praying that these believers would have a strength that comes from the power that only God can do in our hearts through Christ Jesus. So let's look at the three things that this applies to. The first thing he asked for is that we would have, or these people would have, the strength to have Christ dwell in us. Look at verses 14 through the beginning of 17. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, what is he praying for? Because we might look at this and say, if Paul is praying that Christ would dwell in or come into their hearts, well, maybe Christ, uh, Paul is praying that these people would accept Christ as their Savior and be saved. And there are places we could talk about that. You need to accept Christ. You need to embrace Christ. You need to respond to Christ. But that's not what he's talking about here. If you go back to the beginning of this phrase, or this prayer, in verse 14, he starts off with three crucial words. For this reason. When you come across a phrase like that in Scripture, what do you need to do? Find out why it's there. What's it talking about? So we can go back into chapter 3, and if you go all the way back up to chapter 3, you see something really interesting. And I love this about Paul because I can so relate. Paul's a little ADD sometimes. Paul starts in chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dot, 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 and then he picks it up in verse 2. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace given to me for you. And he talks about his ministry. What's Paul doing? Well, in chapter 3, verse 1, he started to pray for them. And then he went, oh yeah, wait a minute, one more thing. And then he picks up the prayer again in verse 14 of chapter 3. I love this because I think Paul is the patron saint of those that get distracted for good reasons. And I'm right there with him. Like you think you're going in a direction. It's like, wait a minute, we've got to talk about this first. So we've got to back up even further. Well, when you start backing up, you start realizing there's no clearly defined section like sometimes there is in the first part of Ephesians. And I really think what's going on is that in chapter 3, verse 1, when he starts the prayer, and then in chapter 3, verse 14, when he picks it up again, the reason that he's referring to is all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. And do you know what Paul talks about in chapter 1 and chapter 2? He talks about how God has saved the Ephesian believers. He talks about how God in his power and in his sovereignty has called to them. He has saved them. He has blessed them. He has secured them. They are clearly in Christ. They are saved. So we have to ask ourselves, what is he talking about when he says and he prays in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith? As a background of this sermon series, uh, myself and some of the other teachers were using a book called Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. 
And it's an exposition of uh, Paul's prayers throughout Scripture. And it's a wonderful study. I highly encourage it. In fact, anything by D.A. Carson is wonderful. I want to read for you an example that he gives. It's rather lengthy, but I just it's such a wonderful example. He talks about this word dwell, and he says this. It helps to recognize that the verb here rendered to dwell is a strong one. Paul's hope is that Christ will truly take up his residence in the hearts of believers as they trust him. That's what through faith means. So as to make their hearts his home. The picture becomes clearer if we think of an analogy. Picture this. Picture a couple carefully marshalling enough resources to put together a down payment. They buy their house, recognizing full well that it needs a fair bit of work. They can't stand the black and silver wallpaper in the master bedroom. There are mounds of trash in the basement. The kitchen was designed for the convenience of the plumber, not the cook. The roof leaks in a couple of places. The insulation barely meets minimum standards. The electrical box is too small. The lighting in the bathroom is poor. The heat exchanger in the furnace is corroded. But still, it is this young couple's first home, and they are grateful The months slip past, then the years. The black and silver wallpaper has been replaced with tasteful pastel patterns. Now, I said in general I agree with D.A. Carson. (laughs) Respectfully, brother in Christ, I disagree there. I don't know what a tasteful pastel pattern is. The couple has remodeled their kitchen, doing much of the work themselves. The roof no longer leaks, and the furnace has been replaced with a more powerful unit that also includes a central air conditioner. Better yet, as the family grows, this couple completes a couple of extra rooms in the basement and a small wing to serve as the study and sewing room. The grounds are neatly trimmed and boast a dazzling rock garden 25 years after the purchase. The husband one day remarks to his wife, You know, I really like it here. This place suits us. Everywhere we look, we see the results of our own labor. This house has been shaped to our needs and taste, and I really feel comfortable. Now listen to how he applies this. When Christ, by his Spirit, takes up residence within us, he finds the moral equivalent of mounds of trash, black and silver wallpaper, and a leaking roof. He sets about turning this residence into a place appropriate for him, a home in which he is comfortable. There will be a lot of cleaning to do, quite a few repairs, some much-needed expansion, but his aim is clear. He wants to take up residence in our hearts as we exercise faith in him. When people take up long-term residence somewhere, their their presence eventually characterizes that dwelling. You understand what he's saying? He says Christ wants to come into us. When we are saved, Christ comes into our life. It's like he purchases us, purchases us through his blood. But there's a lot of remodeling that needs to be done. And I think in those moments we're honest with ourselves. We see it. We feel it. We struggle with that. Oh, I'm not worthy. People say, well, Christ can't clean me up. I'm not worthy. It's exactly because you're not worthy that Christ wants to save you and must save you and must clean you up. We don't come to Christ because we're worthy. We come because we're not, and he makes us worthy. But when Christ comes in and he makes us his home and he lives in our hearts, he sets to work of demolishing the walls we've, struck, we've set up, cleaning up the trash that has accumulated, the guilt and the struggles, the depression over the years, and he makes our hearts his home. He dwells there. 
Now, I said earlier, no one's impressed with an act of strength that's shown in an easy manner. So why is Paul praying that God would give believers the strength to have Christ do this process in their hearts? Do you know why? Because it's hard. It hurts. Those things that are trash in the corner that God looks at and says, we've got to get rid of that, that's often the thing we say, no, that's the most important to me. You can't take that because without it, I'll be lost. It hurts. We say we don't want it. And yet our heart often clings to it. And so Paul prays and he says, God, give them the strength to have Christ truly take up residence in their heart and do the renovation that only he can do. I love the way Paul describes his ministry in Galatians 4.19. He says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul saw it as his passion, his driving force in his life to help people so understand who Christ is that they accept him as Savior and allow Christ to do that work in their lives, to get rid of all that junk until Christ is their Lord and Savior, and they are a picture and a demonstration of Him and His glory. This takes strength. And we need to pray that for ourselves. God, help me. I need your strength to have Christ do this in my life because without your strength, this is going to be awful. We need to pray that for fellow believers. God, help them to have that strength to allow you to do that work in their lives, to dwell in them perfectly, We need to pray for those who aren't in Christ. God, this is hard. Break down the doors of their heart. Help them to see who you are. Set up residence in their life. Dwell in them. And Christians, we need to never, ever be satisfied in our life until we are absolutely and fully certain that Christ is done renovating us. And can I tell you, that will never happen this side of heaven. There's always more work to be done. Keep growing. Keep praying for that strength. The second thing that Paul prays for, in verse 17 at the end of it, into verse 19, he says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul says, I pray that you would know the love of Christ. I think sometimes we think that accepting love is easy. Do you remember, maybe this wasn't your experience, but when you're younger, kids would pass a note, maybe a girl would pass a note to a boy, I love you, here's two boxes to check. If you could just check yes, you love me, or no, you don't. Right? And, and so each, yes, I love you. Oh, they love me. And you hand it back. Oh, we're in love. We don't have to actually talk to each other, but we're in love. This is wonderful. Boom, you check the box. You've received their love. This is great. It's not real love. It's not. And we've got to grow and mature beyond that. I mean, at some point I learned, like, sophomore year of college, that wasn't good enough. I had to move beyond. Come on, it's a joke. We think accepting love is easy, but real love is not about checking a box. Real love is knowing somebody knows exactly who you are to the deepest, darkest core of your being and loves you anyway. 
That kind of love is hard and terrifying to accept. And that's the kind of love that God loves us with. Make no mistake, those things that we walk around thinking, I hope nobody ever finds out about this, God knows. And make no mistake either, He loves you. He knows it, and He loves you. He sent His Son to take that deepest, darkest secret and to pay for it. He loves you. If He didn't send His Son, or if He didn't love you, He wouldn't have sent His Son to do that. So Paul says then, I pray that you being rooted and established in this love. This love of God that has saved them, has come into their hearts, clearing away the clutter, set up his life in them. He says, now based on that, I pray. What does it mean to be rooted and established in love? I think in many ways it sums up Christ dwelling in us. That's the rootedness. That's the establishment that we can understand who Christ is and what it took for him to set up his residence in our heart. But I think it goes beyond that as well. It means then to live in response to that. And I want to give another illustration from Carson. D.A. Carson gives an example of of Perry and Sandy Downs. Uh, Dr. Downs was uh, actually a seminary professor of mine. I didn't have him for a class, but he was at the seminary where I went. And he gives this example. He says, Perry and Sandy Downs were foster parents for many kids, but in particular, there were two kids that came in as 18-month-old boys. They were twins. And they came into their house. And he says this, the first night in the Downs' home, the boys were put to bed and not a peep came from their bedroom. Curious, Perry crept into the room a half hour later. He found both boys wide awake and their pillows wet with tears. But neither was making a sound. He says it transpired that they had been beaten for crying in several of the homes in which they had been placed before coming to Perry and Sandy's. This was their ninth home, ninth home in 18 months. Testing suggested the twins were irremediably damaged emotionally and intellectually. As it happened, the twins stayed with Perry and Sandy for close to two years. By the time they were adopted, they were judged within the normal range of intellectual and emotional capacity. Why? What made the difference from these damaged babies to emotionally secure two- and three-year-olds, four-year-olds? Love. They had not known Love. They had known punishment. They had known consequences. They had known having to twist and warp their behavior to meet their situation. As children, they had this desire to express themselves, and all they had was crying. And somebody took that away from them. Guys, some of us are here today and we're damaged because the love that this world has to offer us has sucked the life out of you. And it's twisted and warped your emotional responses and things that you think are natural. And you're living those things out. And Paul says, I pray that you would know the love of Christ. To clear away that crud and that garbage that the world has to offer and calls love that just damages us. And he says that you would truly know the one who knows you perfectly, sent his son to die for you, and loves you perfectly. We need love as a foundation for all we do. 
the more we understand how much Christ loves for us and loves us, the more we can live in the security that comes from that love. The security that then shows itself in obedience and trust and faith and even the scary aspect of loving the people around us because we are secure in His love. And he says in verse 18 that they need to know this love together with God's holy people. You can read a lot about Christ's love for you by just studying the Bible yourself. There's great books out there, great studies that you can do. But I will tell you, you will never know as much about Christ's love for you until you gather with other believers and they say, let me tell you how Christ has shown His love to me. And they'll say something and you say, I went through something like that too. I never thought of it that way. And suddenly your picture of God's love has gotten bigger. Or you say, I've never been through that at all. Oh my goodness, that must have been hard. And seeing how God has loved them makes your picture of Christ's love for you even bigger. We need each other. We need each other because in verse 19, at the beginning, he says, I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. He says, you need to know something that it's absolutely positively impossible for you to ever know. And how are you going to do that? Well, that's why I'm praying for strength. Because you need God's strength in order to, for you to know that which surpasses knowledge. But the other beautiful thing about the love of Christ surpassing our knowledge is that we're never done. We never get to the end and say, I've experienced all of Christ's love there is to experience. Oh no, there's so much more. Keep going. Keep growing. There are aspects, beautiful aspects of Christ's love that He has yet to show you. And He says that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is the goal. Paul's not praying for the Ephesians saying, I hope He helps you through this difficult time. That's a good prayer. He's not praying for them just saying, I hope you learned something good from this moment right now. No, this is a grand, eternal plan. He says, from now until when Christ comes back, I want God to continue doing this work in your life until everything God has for you is what is in your life. Don't stop. That's a big prayer. Friends, I think sometimes, and I know for me, I'm guilty of praying way too small. God, help me now. God, help so-and-so through this. And that's good. I'm not saying that's wrong. But we need to go beyond that and say, God, this is a part of something bigger you're doing. Help me to know that too. Help me to trust you for that and to not give up and to keep trusting you. We need to pray that God would give us the strength to know Christ's love. But for what purpose? What's the goal? Look at verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Look at what he says. Paul has just prayed a prayer that is humanly impossible for us to answer. I would say it's even humanly impossible for us to comprehend the depths of what Paul's even praying for, let alone answer it. But he's praying to God. And he says this impossible, amazing thing that I've just prayed for. I just prayed to the one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. These things that we look at and say, wow, that's difficult. That's going to take a lot of strength. That's easy for God. That's like bending a coat hanger for God. It's like wadding up aluminum foil for God. 
to come into our hearts and do that work because he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Paul said earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 19 through 20, he prayed, and we looked at this last week, he prayed and he said, this great power that rose Christ from the dead is already at work in you. So this power that we're praying for, saying, God, give us strength, give us power to do this, guess what? It's already there. We're not sitting around twiddling our thumbs going, well, when God shows up and he does this amazing thing in my life, then I'll be able to trust him. No, it's already there. So we say, God, give me the strength to trust that and to step out in faith that you're already giving me the strength to do this. And then he says, to him be the glory in the church. How? If people look at a church, and a church is a gathering of Christians, it's not a building, it's not a program, it's not a structure, it's not a sign, it's not a logo. It's a gathering of Christians. If people look at us and they say, wow, man, they're really super organized and they're really super educated and look how well they do this and they have all these great programs and they've got a really awesome guitarist and it's really cool. I'm talking about Brian. It's really awesome. You know, wow, that's just so amazing. Who gets the glory? We do. Because we're the ones that are awesome. But if people look at the church and they say, wow, those things that are going on there, those people can't do that. The way they show love to each other, that's not humanly possible. I've never seen that anywhere else. The way that older person relates to that younger person, that person from a different ethnicity and background, and they relate to each other, I have no concept of how to explain that. And then you say, well, let me tell you about the God who is able to do immeasurably more than what we ask or imagine. And then who gets the glory? God does. Guys, when we pray for strength, it's not a strength to just do what we do and do it better. It's a strength to allow God to do what only God can do and for us to trust him more in that. And the result then is throughout all generations. We saw the family tree earlier. As one generation passes it down to the next. That might be a generation of of blood relatives. It might be a generation of spiritual relatives people demonstrating the power of Christ at work in their life to people that are watching them and following them. No one is impressed with the strong man who is able to just bend a coat hanger or crumple aluminum foil. Those are easy things. A strong man who trains and lifts hundreds of pounds of weight who is able to bend huge iron bars or rip a phone book in half, do things that those of us who don't train could never hope to do, that's impressive. And you look at them and you say, wow, they have done great work to get to that level. Isn't that amazing what they've done? But what about a strong man that showed up out here on Ladder Road as a city bus went by and stopped it and picked it up in the air? Would you be impressed? Do you think anybody would say, wait, wow, that guy is so strong. Man, he must really work out. Or would you say, wait a minute, there's something else going on here. There's no way anybody can lift enough weights and train enough to physically lift a city bus in the air. That's impossible. There has to be something else going on. When people look at us, that's what they should see. Something that is impossible. And we can say, Let me tell you about Jesus who died on the cross, 
who's taken up residence in my life, who's clearing away these things I couldn't do, who's changing me from the inside out, and who gives me strength to live on the love that he has given me day in and day out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. And so, God, we come to you and we pray for the strength that only you can give. And God, maybe there's somebody here that's been fighting some battle in their life on their own strength for a long time. Maybe there's somebody here that sees a battle in their life that they have just stayed away from because they think it's going to be too hard to give that up to you, to turn that aspect of their life around. And God, I pray that you would overwhelm them with the power of your mighty strength this morning. I pray that they would in faith trust you in what you're doing. That one day they might be able to tell everybody around them, let me tell you what the power and strength of Christ did in my life because I couldn't do it. And God, may we as a church be characterized by people who so trust in you that it's not our strength. It's not our power that anybody's amazed by. They're amazed by you and you get all the glory. God, grant us that strength, that power that raised Christ from the dead and is at work in the lives of those who believe and can be at work in the lives of those who don't believe. They would trust you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.